Well, good morning again. Uh, We are going to be finishing our trek through the Gospel of Mark this morning. Uh, So if you want to turn to Mark 15, verse 40, and if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you, that'll be on page 829, I believe. Our sermon is titled, He is Risen. All right. Mark 15, starting at verse 40 through 16, verse 8. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth and took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you, what is faith? It's a word with many definitions. Just look up the world's dictionary, dictionary dictionary.com. It's officially replaced Oxford. Well, not really, but it's much easier than Oxford. If you check dictionary.com or you ask any Portlander to define faith, you'll probably get the second answer that dictionary.com gives, which is this. Faith is belief that is not based on proof. Are you familiar with that definition? This is the understanding of faith in the Dan Brown novel-turned-movie, The Da Vinci Code. Sophie says to Langdon at one point, you told me the New Testament is based on a fabrication. And Langdon replies, Sophie, every faith in the world is based on fabrication. That is the definition of faith, acceptance of that which we imagine to be true, that which we cannot prove. Perhaps you're visiting with us this morning, and that is the definition of faith which you are most familiar with. Well, again, you might be surprised. That's the second definition, not the first. The first definition is this. Faith is confidence or trust in a person or a thing. Now, we're familiar with this definition as well, are we not? I have faith that the sun will rise tomorrow. I hope you do as well. We have a confidence that tomorrow the sun is going to rise. Of course, it's certainly possible that the sun explodes tomorrow and doesn't rise, but we have pretty sure faith that it is going to rise. Well, 
in that sentence, that confidence is rooted in evidence, in facts, in history. Contrary to what the average Portlander might expect, it is this definition of faith which the Bible speaks of. You see, there's no hint in the Bible that we are to believe something with no evidence. That is especially true of what we celebrate this morning, the resurrection of Jesus. We have a confident faith, the man Jesus rose from the dead, not because we cannot prove it, but because of the overwhelming historical evidence. Now, we will think more of on that a bit later in the sermon, but before we get there, there's another element that we need to deal with here at the end of Mark, which Christians believe because of evidence. If you were using a pew Bible, there's a line there after verse 8, and then in some Bibles it'll bracket it and say the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And then it'll either put it in italics or some other type of font. Uh, here's the reason for that. This is a tiny summary of this large field of study. But it's basically this. The earlier Bibles, if you grew up maybe with a King James version of the Bible, that was originally written in 1611 and it was updated in the 1800s. Um, but that Bible would have this all as one section. And the reason the newer Bibles do not have it is because of this little story. Starting in 1897... There's some archaeologists who discovered an enormous cache of ancient Greek manuscripts in a city outside Egypt, city of Oxyrhynchus, the city of the sharp-nosed fish. They showed up to this city and they were looking for manuscripts because that's what you do. You go to Egypt where it's a dry climate and sand where manuscripts would be preserved. And they said, hey, any chance you'd know where any manuscripts would be? Well, try the trash heap out back. So they walked out of the city and went to the trash heap which is mounds upon mounds of sand covering trash, stuff that people had thrown out. And what they discovered was an enormous cache of manuscripts. Over the next number of seasons, they did dig after dig, and they found over 500,000 pages of papyrus. And from that papyrus, discoveries were made of this incredible amount of early biblical witnesses. Now, the story goes that, that one of the men went and he saw something brown sticking out of the ground, so he flipped it over with his, his boot and felt bad about it afterwards because that was an ancient page of Matthew 1 in Greek on a piece of papyrus. Well, as they've researched and done all this study on these ancient manuscripts, what they discovered is that all the earliest manuscripts don't have these last 12 verses of Mark's gospel. And what we found is it was added later, probably in the second century at some point, so that's why the newer Bibles part put this mark. They have to keep it in there because anyone who grew up on the King James Version knows these verses well, and they'd think you tweaked their Bibles. But based off of the evidence, we've realized that, oh, those verses weren't actually in the original book. Well, that is why those things are missing. If you want to geek out on that entirely, I'll bring a documentary over and we can nerd out on it together. It's a fascinating story and a very interesting area of study, I assure you. It might not put most of you to sleep. Well... With that, we've come to the end of our study of Mark, and we'll be looking at this final closing section under these two points, the preparation and the resurrection. I know I'm a Baptist pastor, but sometimes you have to do a two-point sermon. Here we go. The preparation and the resurrection. So once again, look at verses 40 through 47 with me. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. 
So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself awaiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead, summoning the centurion. He asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Did you hear the sandwich? As we've gone through Mark's gospel, we found these Markan sandwiches, or Mark sandwiches stories together. In the first two verses there, 40 and 41, we hear about these women. And then they pop up again in verse 47. And 16.1, and again at 16.8. This is the final Markan sandwich lumped together. And in between these verses about the women, you have Joseph of Arimathea, and then you have the boy, or the angel, as we're going to find out. And as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, he does this intentionally to cause you to compare and contrast the characters so as to understand them better. Well, Mark here introduces these women. Now, this is technically connected to the crucifixion account. It's at the very end, and it says that these women watched the crucifixion. But this is the first time we found out about them. And in a gospel where Mark doesn't usually give people's names, it is rather interesting he lays out these women's name, and all of a sudden we find out they've been with Jesus from the beginning. They came down from Galilee. If you remember the structure of Mark's gospel, the first eight chapters or so is, is him up in Galilee. And then in chapters, uh, the end of 8, 9, 10, 11, it's, or 10, it's him on the way. And then 11 through 16 is him in Jerusalem. So they've been with him since the beginning. We find out they've been providing for his needs, as a matter of fact. But then the scene switches quickly to Joseph of Arimathea. So we'll have to come back to the women. And they introduce this man, Joseph of Arimathea. He's a council member. That is, he's a part of the Sanhedrin. The other gospels tell us that he actually was a secret disciple, uh, which means here he is boldly coming to Pilate to ask for the body. And it says, Joseph was a man waiting for the kingdom of God. And so he shows up and asks for the body to bury it. And Pilate's amazed, as we said, because oftentimes those bodies would hang on those crosses for a couple days at a time. But already we've passed by something that is critically important and so easy to miss. Joseph is described in a particular way. He's a man waiting for the kingdom of God. See, anybody who's been carefully reading and studying this book would know that that phrase is critically important. The gospel began with Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the good news, that the kingdom is at hand. What Jesus proclaimed then is what Joseph had been waiting for. And that seems to be why he was this disciple. He has learned about Jesus' claims that the kingdom was at hand. But now the declarer of the kingdom is dead, hanging on a cross. Well, if you go to Mark 4, we learn a little more about this kingdom that Jesus declared. And there, Jesus teaches us that the kingdom is not what people expected. They were anticipating the conquering hero, the Avengers kingdom. But that's not the kingdom Jesus explains. Uh, he says the kingdom's like seed. Talk about really underwhelming. Seed, scattered, and three-quarters of it ends up in places where it doesn't actually grow. It's like seed that grows slowly, which means it's God's gift of slow growth. He even says it's like the smallest of all seeds. The mustard seed, which is planted in the garden and grows so big that the birds, that is the nations, are able to join in and take 
shade under its branches. So it's a very slow kingdom. It's not a big bang. It's this long, slow growth. And then Jesus gave one other critical piece of information about this kingdom in chapter 9. He said that his disciples would still be alive when the kingdom came in power. That's the kingdom Joseph was waiting for, hoping that Jesus would bring it. And now the question hangs in midair. This was the man who'd been following Jesus in hopes of the coming kingdom. Well, what happens to all the promises of Jesus now? He's hanging there on a cross. We'll have to put a pin in that for now until later. But the point is, is the readers are meant to feel the sorrow and the dread. This man had heard this message of the kingdom and he had followed him. And now his hopes are undone because anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God, says Deuteronomy. But unlike the disciples, Joseph doesn't flee. He's still there. He even goes and asks for this body, which again, normally would have taken a couple days to die, but in this instance, Jesus dies more quickly. The other gospel accounts tell us that normally what would actually happen is this. In the Roman society, they would crucify someone and leave them on the cross for the birds and the wild dogs to pick at them. It heightened the grotesque nature of crucifixion. Because crucifixion was done to warn against imposters or traitors, people who would seek an uprising. So they'd leave the naked bodies hung there for days until the birds picked at them. But in Judea, the Jewish law was, according to Deuteronomy 21-23, you had to bury someone hung by sunset or else there'd be a curse on the land. And so Rome had kind of a special dispensation just for that area where they would bring them down from the cross. This is why the other Gospels show the soldiers breaking the legs of the other two thieves, and they come and find Jesus, but he's already dead. So they thrust a spear up in his chest cavity, proving that he had, in fact, already died. Well, because this is the day of preparation for the Sabbath, it means that all of the bringing him down off the cross, all of the preparation has to be done before sunset. Now, again, this process would have been rather involved. Joseph would have had to go and take him off the cross and pull the nails out, or his servants. They would have had to wash the body and wrap it in linen. And it seems that Jesus was now placed inside of the tomb, probably Joseph's own family tomb. And then they would have rolled a stone in place after putting spices on the body to keep away the smell of decay. Then typically a year or so later, they'd go back and take the bones when all the flesh was gone and put them in a little box, an ossuary, and leave it there and use the stone bed for the next person. So the saying goes, Jesus was born in a virgin womb and laid in a virgin tomb. They roll this stone. The stone would have been something like 1,500 to 3,000 pounds. It would have had a special channel carved in it so it could be rolled in front. It would have taken men with levers to get it into place. So that's the first picture we get of Joseph. And then we're contrasting this picture with these women who stayed close, closer than the disciples who all fled, who supported Jesus just like the disciples through this whole time, and they saw where he was laid. So why are they mentioned? What purpose do they serve? Well, in Mark's telling, Joseph is alone. In John's telling, Nicodemus is with him and helps him. But in Mark's telling, these women are the official witnesses. As he says, it requires at least two people to testify to something. And so Mark is setting up these two women as the official witnesses of the death, verse 40 and 41, and resurrection, verse 8, of Jesus. But you see, that is a huge problem. 
Because in that day, women were not allowed to be witnesses. Their testimony was excluded in court. In Roman and Jewish culture, women were outside of positions of power, and so it was inadmissible. So maybe if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian and you doubt the resurrection, I hope you see this piece of evidence. These women are an essential piece of evidence to the truthfulness of the resurrection. Because you have to explain why in the world, in a first century context, would you let women be witnesses when in that culture women weren't allowed to be witnesses? See, I know in our culture it's not like that. Much of the the gender distinctions and hierarchy have have been lost in our culture. Now that's not the case in, in all the world, but in ours it is. But in their culture, it is ridiculous to tell this story this way. Particularly, this is the story you're using to convince people that this man died and rose again. This becomes even more important because in the other Gospels, we find out that there were men available who could be witnesses. Peter and John run to the tomb and they see it for themselves. It would have been so easy just to leave the women out. But none of the Gospels do. So this shows us at least two things. First, it shows us that Jesus' kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. You see, again, in some cultures today, a wife is not allowed to speak to her husband in public. She's actually supposed to walk 10 paces behind him in some cultures. Now, in our westernized world, we just find that appalling, and I'd say rightfully so. Our world has changed. It's no longer patriarchal in that sense. Uh, Now, the power brokers of this world are the rich, right? Those with the most money. I don't know about you, but I've never heard of a middle-class, a blue-collar worker being invited to Davos Unless, of course, he's the one fixing the toilet. No, in our culture, it's money that talks, right? But having women be the first witnesses would have been shocking. Which is why Jesus and his kingdom is shocking to many sensibilities. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. In Jesus' kingdom, we are all one in Christ. So you see, by telling the story this way, we get a hint that Jesus was saying, this is not the way culture is supposed to be. Now, of course, Christians have not always been at their best on this, and we have often made countless mistakes and and failed to represent Jesus' ideals of how women are to be honored. But again, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, while the women's testimony is no problem for us, it was a huge problem for them. And you have to understand, nobody would tell a story that would instantly discredit the story by including witnesses that nobody would have agreed to. But more than that, you have to be able to explain this. How is it the startup ragtag group of Jews changed the entire Roman Empire in a matter of a couple hundred years? 50 days after this, at Pentecost, there'll be 120 people who are Jesus followers following him. 120 who saw him resurrected. And in 270, 300 years, it grew so much that Emperor Constantine found it politically advantageous to convert to Christianity, and even make the symbol on the shield, the Cairo, the letters for Christ. You see, there were other Jewish leaders who rose and claimed to be Messiah, but the moment they died, all their followers disbanded, never to get together again. You have to explain how this guy's followers kept going and changed the world. Now, I've mentioned the book before, but I would commend it again. British classicist Tom Holland, not the actor from Spider-Man, but the British classicist and historian, Tom Holland, wrote a brilliant book called Dominion. And in that book, he explains how the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus has entirely shaped the Western world. Now, Holland is not a Christian. He's an atheist. He's a historian. 
And he just walks through and says, you cannot explain our Western world without the things that flowed from this experience of a Jewish man dying on a Friday and rising on a Sunday. And, in fact, all the best arguments for the elevation of women have come from the Christians down through the years. Now, that's not to say that Christians have always lived up to that. We certainly haven't. But that is to say, you have to wrestle with why would this story be told this way? And why would it have the impact it had? Unless something really did happen. Now, for Christians here this morning, last week we saw how Pilate had seen the religious leaders. He'd seen their envy and how they were handing Jesus over to killing him. And we discussed the fact that Christians, our lives are a megaphone to the world around us. They're watching and seeing. And the way we behave is going to speak volumes about Jesus and about what they should believe about Jesus. Whereas last week we saw Pilate saw the envy of the majority, this week, Joseph, one of that same Sanhedrin, he sees incredible blessing because Joseph pays for this expense himself puts him in his own tomb. And it was the early church following Joseph's example that helped change the whole world in those days. As I mentioned, 300 years or so after, after this little Jewish band, they had shaped the empire in Constantine's day. Well, some 24 years after Constantine's death, his nephew was known as Julian the Apostate. He hated Christians. He wanted to go back to worshiping the Roman gods. He thought the decline in the empire was because people were not worshiping the Roman gods as they should have. And he said this, that he hated Christianity and the influence it had gained because of this. And he writes, the Christian faith has been specifically advanced through loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. And that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for help that we should render to them. That's Julian the apostate, hater of Christianity, acknowledging that you could not deny that what started with 120 people in upper room had changed the empire to the point of they were the ones caring for the poor. So Bethany Baptist Church, could we be accused of similar care? Of course, we must love and serve the members of our church, but beyond these walls, how do we go about caring for those outside? I'm excited for Dick and the outreach team and planning the yard sale this summer, but not for money that might be made, for relationships that might be established. And as we start getting home groups off the ground, my hope is that our budget, how we think about money, will reflect this mission to move beyond, to reach out to the areas around us. To think not only for the missionaries out there, yes, that's good, but also the mission here that has moved into our backyard. Uh, there's been a couple brothers who are, who are asking questions about what would it take to maybe host a refugee family? Well, that, that's an, an unbelievable amount of work, but maybe that's something we should prayerfully consider. Hear me clearly. God does his work through his word. He calls, he saves, he sanctifies. But one of the means that God uses is his people loving those around them. See, friends, it does no good for us Christians to live like Christians if we live in a bubble or a bunker. The Christian life is meant to be lived before the watching world. So practically, start asking your grocery clerk for their name. Don't do the self-checkout aisle. I know, it's so much easier. I prefer it. Go and talk to another human being and ask them for their name. People used to do this. You used to have to do this. More than that, when you go to a restaurant, ask for your server's name. If you're really bold, tell them, I'm going to pray for my meal. Can I pray for you for anything? 
and tip well. I'm serious. This is a simple practical thing. I had a dear friend years ago who worked as a server in college, and he said, man, the Sunday lunch crowd at churches were the worst tips I ever got. If you're going to be a regular at a restaurant, be a regular that they want to see coming. Practical stuff. But beyond all that, pray. Pray for this community. Pray for these neighborhoods. Go on walks and pray that the Lord would work, that the Lord would save. Well, we've seen the preparation, and now we'll see the resurrection. Look at verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, bought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So once again, two women, now three women, are seen, and they're heading to anoint the body with spices. Uh, the other Gospels tell us that Jesus was anointed the day before, so it seems they're coming again to, to seek to further anoint his body, to bless him and honor his memory. And as with the disciples, they are still clueless. They've entirely forgotten that three times in this Gospel, five in Matthew, Jesus told them this was going to happen, that they were going to kill him, and he was going to rise again. Well, they head to the tomb very early in the morning, and while they're on their way, it says they remember this stone. Now, some people have made a big deal about this, and they're like, nobody forgets a stone. Come on, give me a break. And I would just say, I don't think you understand people grieving. They just saw the teacher that they'd walked with for three years, flogged and crucified and taken down and put in a tomb. It's a pretty easy thing to forget about a big stone. And so they went thinking, what are we going to do about the stone? It's huge. It would require men with levers. How are we going to do that? But that problem solved for them because the stone has been rolled away. So they arrive in the tomb and they crawl in. Now, some have said that they, they, those tomb entrances, you might have actually had to crawl to get into them, at the very least duck. But they head into the tomb and instead of seeing a dead body, they see a young man dressed up to the nines. I say to the nines because in Luke's account, it says his robes were white like lightning. Mark likes to get rid of extra details. But this young man is sitting there wearing the equivalent of a white tux in a graveyard. And now there's some debate regarding the tone of his response. I think most of us probably read this fairly positively. I think most of us probably imagine the young man saying something like this. Hey, look, Jesus isn't here. Go, go tell Peter and the boys that it's all right. And he headed up to Galilee. I think we assume this is rather positive. But there are hints in the text, and in the other Gospels especially, that this was a gentle rebuke. That this was a, he told you this was going to happen. Like three times in Mark's gospel. He told you this was going to happen. See, there's a hint also in the fact that that word for look, you are looking for him. It's used ten times in Mark's gospel. And every time it's used, it's used as a way for someone to doubt Jesus. And then we just learned that these women have been with him this whole time. So they would have heard him declare that this is what was going to happen. So it might be better to read this with a tone of this. Why exactly are you looking for Jesus in a tomb? He said he would rise again. 
Go tell Peter and the disciples. He'll meet him in Galilee. James Edwards puts it well. The visit to the tomb is vintage Marcan irony. The living are consumed with death, but the crucified one is consumed with life. Mark tells a story, though, the way he does, with this hint of rebuke from the angel, from Jesus, about because Jesus had already told them what was going on, but also because faced with this overwhelming fact that dead people stay dead. So you can totally understand why they didn't get it. It's a one-for-one reality until Jesus, dead people stay dead. But they had heard Jesus say. I mean, they trusted everything he taught. Why didn't they trust this one thing he taught? Because dead people stay dead. Now, all four gospel accounts tell of this physical, bodily resurrection, that the one who was crucified on Friday was alive on Sunday morning. And now, some have expressed skepticism regarding whether or not we can trust these four gospel accounts. I mean, this is kind of insider baseball, right? They're, they're trading on, on their own story. But notice what Mark is doing. He's giving us names to go ask for proof. And Paul does the same thing, except for Paul expands the list. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul gives names. He says, you doubt it? Go ask him. You see, friend, if you doubt the resurrection, you need to have a plausible explanation for why all these early accounts pressed people to go see for themselves. A second question that you should ask is this. Why would you lie about this? See, in our modern world, where viral YouTube or TikTok video might make you a quick buck, that's not how it worked back then. What possible benefit could there be from lying about the resurrection? These were not the power brokers of the day. There was not a campaign. There was no GoFundMe. No. This is even more important because just as this gospel was written, the persecution against Christians was really being ramped up. See, Jews had been handing Christians over since the early days. We read about that in Acts. Handing them over any chance they got to the Romans for persecution. But now the Roman persecution itself was being ramped up. Peter and Paul would both be killed in Rome around AD 66 for clinging to this message. that The man Jesus was resurrected. Now, friends, I get it. I love a good story. I've read the entire Harry Potter series cover to cover two times. I'm going to start it again soon. I love a good story. But I'm not dying for a fairy tale. That is ridiculous. Nobody does that. So whether you understand it or not, you've got to understand, the first Christians believed it. They went to their grave for this reality. Or one scholar notes it this way. We are forced to postulate something which will account for the fact that a group of first-century Jews who cherished the messianic hopes and centered them on this man, Jesus of Nazareth, claimed after his public death that he really was the Messiah, despite the crushing evidence to the contrary. See, friends, for those who may be skeptical about the resurrection, you need to be able to explain this disbanded, ragtag group, how they continued, how they had influence of changing the empire, You need to explain why it is they'd be willing to be kicked out of synagogues, lose their livelihood, their friends, why some would go to their death for it. Friend, I just hope you see the Christian faith is anything but a belief in something that cannot be proven. It takes far more faith to ignore the overwhelming evidence of the historical record. And so my question for you this morning is this. 
Have you actually given this evidence a fair hearing? Have you actually engaged with the argument? If not, I invite you to do so. Lunch is on me until we work through these questions together. I'd love to speak with you. I'll be standing right there afterwards. Well, these women go into the tomb and they see this angelic man telling them Jesus is risen. And he tells them to go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going back to Galilee. Well, a couple weeks ago, we saw the importance of this angel calling out and Peter. Though Peter's story had great failure, it contained an incredible amount of hope as well. See, maybe you're like me. You can identify with Peter. He wants to do so well, but he crashes and burns so hard. Christian, Peter is a wonderful example and reminder for us that the whole of the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. There's never been an option. There's, there's never been any other way of living out the Christian life than coming to terms with the reality that we are going to fail regularly. That we are going to need to confess sin and repent. It's sad that some Christian groups have made it seem to non-Christians that you come perfect or you don't come at all. That is ludicrous. The entire Christian message is we are so broken that God, the Son incarnate, had to die for us sinners. And his death does not make us perfect. It makes us repentant. It makes us see our failures and turn back to the one who forgives sinners like us. But Christian, what this means is that we dare not ever get to the place where it's more comfortable to keep quiet than to confess. That we never get to the place where it's just a little too awkward to confess when we have sinned. We should be nervous when we care more about what others think about us and what we might say than the reality that true confession is the definition of the Christian life. Go and tell Peter, is go and tell Peter that you can repent and you can trust in Jesus anew today. Because all Christians fail. And to prove that they fail, Mark ends his gospel in an incredible way by saying, the women who were there, who were the witnesses, they fail too. Did you catch that? I'd never seen this before until studying it this time. That last verse, trembling and bewildered, the women went out, fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That's exactly the opposite of what the dude in the lightning white suit just told him to do. Now we know from other sources that they didn't remain silent. But Mark tells the story this way for a very specific purpose. Throughout Mark's gospel, he has been at pains to show that nobody's good but Jesus. That only Jesus will never fail us. Peter's hot-headedness is on display. James and John, can we sit at your right and left? Over and over again, everybody in Mark's gospel is shown to be precisely what all Christians should recognize. Sinners, fallible, fallen. Well, see, as I said, some folks down through the years have hated the ending of Mark's gospel. So much so, that long ending you see is actually one or part of four. There's been four different attempts to pin an ending on this gospel because they just don't like it. But I actually think it's ended this way intentionally for a few reasons. So here's three. First, because everyone who is confronted with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus will be fearful. Will fear for what that means for our lives. Again, for the Jews, they were losing their livelihood. Some were going to go to their death for that claim. Following Jesus is costly, so it is not a decision to be made lightly. Jesus refuses to be added to the pantheon of gods as the one who conquered death 
He is accepted as Lord or rejected. You do not get an a la carte Jesus. You take him as the risen king or you walk away. A second reason for ending it this way. As I mentioned how Mark, in Mark, the kingdom is this seed which is planted. And seeds grow really slowly. Well, in Jesus' cross, the kingdom seed is planted. And in his resurrection, the kingdom seed is sprouted. And it will slowly and continually grow. It's been growing ever since. Because Jesus is the risen king, ever since then, he has been calling subjects from every tongue and tribe and people. And all those who have come to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus have been those who've been brought under the shade of the branches of his kingdom. But again, it's an all or nothing transfer. As we sang on Friday night, it demands our soul, our life, our all. Well, the third reason why Mark ends his gospel this way is it ends with an implied question. The question is this, Jesus is the risen king. How will you respond? You see, in this gospel, Mark himself has warned, signs and miracles do not create faith. All the evidence in the world of the resurrection cannot force a change. It didn't work for the women. They saw it and remained silent. That's why Mark tells it that way. So how about for you? How will you respond to having met Jesus in Mark's gospel? If we're being remotely honest in ourse- with ourselves, all the evidence in the world does not ultimately change our behavior. It's no secret that China is committing genocide against the Uyghurs, but we still buy our iPhones. All Europe sees the atrocities of Putin, but they go on buying his fuel. On and on and on and on we could go. Friends, at the end of the day, it's not more evidence that changes our heart. It's it's not more evidence that's going to make you all of a sudden miraculously believe in the resurrection and, and now start to be a Christian. No. It's the work of Christ. Mark Strauss comments, Mark's gospel is a paradox. Mark's gospel is almost certainly written to suffering church or churches. And although people in Mark's gospel follow the Messiah, they experience suffering instead of salvation, persecution instead of glory. In the face of such hardships, Mark calls his readers to submit to God's kingdom, to have faith in the one who healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead, and to be willing to take up their cross and follow him. Those who do so will receive forgiveness of sin, a new family of faith, entrance into the kingdom of God, and ultimate vindication when the Son of Man comes in the clouds of great power and glory to gather his elect. The gospel of Mark ends not with human triumph, but with failure to show us that we all fail. That we know there's one who lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died. We are going to fail to follow him in many ways. So the question at the end of this gospel to each one of us is simple. How will you respond to the risen king's call today? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for this day. We are reminded of the gift of your son for sinners such as us. Holy Spirit, would you so work in us or that we would not flee from our brokenness, but that we would run to Jesus, the risen King. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.